0: Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alexander Schmieding and you're listening to From Vision to Creation, a podcast that dives deep into the minds of visionaries who pursued their passions and made their visions a reality. On each episode, we will have conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, industry leaders, and business owners, and we'll explore the mindset that fueled their desire to take their dreams from vision to creation. This podcast is brought to you by proper placement, a full service marketing agency that can help promote your business through social media marketing, paid advertising, email marketing, and more. Find out how we can help grow your business at properplacement.com. At proper placement, we don't have clients, we have partners. Welcome to another episode of From Vision to Creation. I'm your host, Alexander Schmieding, and today we are honored to introduce a visual storyteller whose lens has captured the narratives of our world's most complex and challenging environments. For nearly 35 years, Tim Freccia has been photographing and filming the stories of people around the world. Tim's lens has not merely documented events. It has become a conduit for the unheard voices a testament to the resilience and strength of individuals navigating the complexities of conflict and crisis. As a seasoned photographer and filmmaker, Tim's work has transcended the realm of storytelling, reaching audiences through the pages of Vice Magazine, The New York Times, Business Week, and the airwaves of Al Jazeera, BBC, and more. His portfolio, a breathtaking mosaic of visual narratives, encapsulates the many faces of our world. From the remote corners of the globe to the epicenters of social upheaval, Tim has adeptly navigated through the shadow and light, capturing the essence of the human experience in its raw and unfiltered form. Join us as we delve into the life and work of Tim Freccia, a storyteller whose lens has transcended the boundaries of conventional journalism, offering us profound insights into the human condition. Through his lens, we are invited to witness not only the struggles, but also the triumphs that define our shared existence. Welcome to a journey that goes beyond borders and brings forth the compelling narratives that shape our world. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I read that before you started your career, you started off going to art school.
1: Yeah, well, This career. Before that, I spent five years as a commercial fisherman in the North Bering Sea in Alaska. Um, And then I had a brief um, sort of mini career as a recording engineer and producer in Washington, D.C.
0: When you went to art school, what did you study? Photography. Photography. Okay. And so when you were in art school studying photography, um, did you have... Every intention of becoming a photojournalist, or did that happen later?
1: That happened later. I intended and and to and did work as a fashion photographer, an editorial fashion photographer, for a couple of years. Um, I mean, I studied commercial photography, so I shot everything. I shot products and food and people, but I uh, I was inclined towards editorial fashion. I shot for. Nordstrom and some other local labels and actually did a job for Carl Lagerfeld um,
0: right out of school. How did, how did that opportunity come about?
1: I don't really remember. Um, I think... I don't remember. I just remember the job. Um, it was for short neckties. And... Uh, it must have come through one of the agencies that I was working with at the time. I did a whole lot of testing of models, and I was around that world for a year or two. Um, how I came into photojournalism, I, while I was in school, um, the U.S. invaded, I think it was Granada or Panama. It might have been Panama. Um, And I briefly considered leaving school to go cover that. So I had had an interest. Um, But my first foray into documentary photography would have been in the late 80s, early 90s. I went to Haiti to cover, at the time, I actually originally went there to um, shoot a film. I, I should back up a little bit and say that I started shooting motion pictures before I left school. So I was shooting both stills and moving pictures from the get-go. And this was before digital, so it was film. So I shot 16-millimeter film and 35-millimeter film, some medium format, but mostly 35-millimeter film and stills and 16-millimeter moving pictures. Um, A friend in Seattle's father was running... (coughs) a um, agriculture, agriculture school in in Haiti, which would, at the time was probably the only foreign development thing there. And he contracted me and my friend to come and make a film about the school. So we went to Haiti, we did that, and this was right at the end of the Duvalier regime, the... the, the uh, Papa Doc and Baby Doc.
0: Um,
1: and Haiti elected its well, first democratically elected president, who was a Catholic priest, who won in a landslide. And I covered that and went back a few times. Um, he was deposed by the military a couple of years later, and I was there for that. And I think that was what I really kind of
0: got into it. And it sounds like, so you were already working on these creative projects while you were in school. So you were already pursuing your passion. You were very clear about what you wanted to do at an early age. Can you recall the first time that you realized, you know, this is the career that I want to pursue?
1: I think it was when I started school. I, I'd, like I said, I was been working as a commercial fisherman in Alaska for some years before that. And it was exciting and I made a lot of money, it was a lot of adventure, but it was also deadly um, at that time there were, you know, a few hundred boats and their crews went down every year and I lost friends yeah. and <clears throat> there was a, uh, juncture where between trips I would, it was a rotation. I would spend like 90 days on and then a month off. I go home and had tons of money and cars and bikes and booze and I got, um, uh, Right before I went home on that rotation, my younger brother went up to fish for the first time. His boat was out for a couple of weeks and it sank. And miraculously, he and the crew were rescued. But that kind of made me a little bit uncomfortable. And then I was home for that rotation and I got hit on my motorcycle and that knocked me out for another, I don't know, a couple of months. And at that time, I remember my father uh, kind of counseling me to look for a more sustainable career. Um, So I went to the uh, the local art school and they asked me what I wanted to study and I asked, you know, what do you have? And then we did a tour of the school and we got to the photography department there was the dark room and chemicals and stuff. And I thought that looked cool, so I'll study that. But I really fell in love with it the minute, uh, I, within a couple of weeks, I was working um, as a photographer, and, and I was obsessed with it. I'd spent the darkroom was open at night, so I would spend all day and all night there, and ended up moving into a place across the street from the school. And, I mean, it was really my whole life for a couple
0: of years. It almost sounds like photography chose you in a way, like yeah, it just I mean, everything kind of teed up perfectly for you to start. Um, for you to be able to, you know, study photography and really pursue that, and when you were mentioning, you know, your time as a commercial fisherman in Alaska, you said it was dangerous and but exciting. Do you think I, I was, you know, I was looking at a lot of the work you did online, and it, you went and, and just, just what you, what you just mentioned is a good example. The U.S. invading um, Panama, and you, you hear about that, and you're like, oh, well, let me go cover this. You know, it sounds it sounds dangerous, but it also sounds exciting. Do you think that your Um, time being a commercial fisherman helped prepare you for a lot of the projects you worked on later
1: i guess in a way yeah i mean i grew up as a i grew up in a really normal happy family in a suburb um i grew up on a dirt road at the beach in west seattle when there were no people in seattle and it's not a dirt road anymore but it, it was really an idyllic childhood and my parents were pretty um relaxed. That was a different time. And I, you know, I spent my days jumping off cliffs and riding my bikes in the holes and stuff. And and the Pacific Northwest is a really great place, was a really great place to grow up. It's, I mean, it's very adventurous. Um, I sailed as a child. I skipped grade school to sail. And I had a little dinghy that I kept down on the beach and I would cut out and take it sailing. So I had, I wouldn't say, um, a, a life of extreme adventure or anything as a child, but um, but a lot of outdoor activity and a lot of freedom. Um, yeah, so when I decided at 16 to go fish in Alaska, my parents were, um, they weren't thrilled, but they were more or less supportive. I mean, they didn't try to stop me. And um, so in a way, I guess that did prepare me for some other things because it was pretty horrific at times. Um... Yeah.
0: So you had a bit of an adventurous childhood, and then you took on a very adventurous job. Your brother follows in your footsteps. His boat sinks his first trip out. And then did he ever go back to do that, or were you both just kind of like, we're done?
1: He was done. I, I, I wasn't necessarily done, but I kind of got talked into uh, looking for other things. But I think, I'm, I'm not sure what, if there were any, was any specific event that triggered this, but I, my whole life, I've sort of embraced the unknown, and kind of, it's, it's always been my thing. It's like a swan dive into the unknown. And to this day, I can tell you later, I mean, what Trish and I are up to, we're doing kind of a wild, you know, swan dive into the unknown. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always been like that for me. I've always taken these huge leaps of faith um, in pursuit of, I mean, I think it's it's human nature to fear the unknown, but by confronting that fear on a regular basis since, a, since I was a child, um, I'm accustomed to it and I'm, in a, in a way, um, I, I look for it not as much as I used to. <laughs> um, but mostly because I've, I've, I've come out of everything Better in some way. Um, I've had some bad experiences, but uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, a simple way to put it is I would do it all the same again mm. uh, and everything,
0: including the bad stuff. Because you probably learned the biggest lessons out of those.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of cliche, but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, I can, I can attest to that too. Just, you know, starting off in my career as well. So you, you study photography at art school, you graduate, you're working with an agent who lands you this first, who lands you one of your first jobs with Carl Lagerfeld, um, photographing the small ties. What, what, what happened after that?
1: Well, not long after that, I, I went back to Alaska to Anchorage and opened a commercial studio there. Um, and my big bread and butter client at the time was the Pipeline Company, which was a consortium of, I think it was mostly BP and Arco. And it was right after the <clears throat> Exxon Valdez oil spill. Their image was bad, and they had an unlimited budget. They were like, whatever it takes, make us look good. So that was a great year um, of doing pretty much anything I wanted to do, as long as I got you know some wildlife Silhouetted against the pipeline in the background or a tanker in the port or something, um, so I you know I had a year of of traveling all over the state of Alaska with unlimited budget and helicopters and as much film as I wanted and um, so that was a that was a good year uh, at the time uh, a, uh, my girlfriend came with me and she couldn't handle the winter, which is understandable. It was, you know, it's like being on the moon. Um, there's just no light and it's cold. And uh, after a year, she couldn't take it anymore. So we moved back to Seattle. And uh, I think that was around the time we got married. And that was around the time that I um, made that trip, that first trip to Haiti. Um, And then from there, she wanted to finish university in Kentucky, where she was from. So we went to Kentucky and lived there for a little while. I started working more away. I made more trips to Haiti, uh, made a trip to West Africa. And uh, that sort of contributed to the the end of that marriage. It was pretty brief. um, And it was an amicable but sad split. I just wasn't going to work because I wasn't really around.
0: And what initially started um, taking you to Haiti? Why, why did you choose Haiti?
1: Well, like I said, the first trip was I, it was commissioned to shoot
0: an
1: image film for this, this agricultural school um, in Haiti that was being run by the father of a friend. And it was actually kind of a cover for U.S. military intelligence. Um, but that <clears throat> put me on the ground in Haiti, and I really fell in love with the people and, you know, I'd never been to a third world country. This is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And um, and really kind of supercharged. There was a lot of buzz there going on because it was the end of a, a, a dynasty of, of dictators, the Duvaliers. Um, and the beginning of what looked like was going to be, you know, it was a very exciting time with this... Priest to becoming president he turned out to be kind of crazy and went mad with power and was removed um but yeah it was exciting to me because and again there was no there was no foreign development there so it wasn't like it is now there there wasn't anywhere actually at that time the only real foreign development were, were missionaries you know who would go off into the bush barefoot to help people and You didn't have this institutionalized uh, humanitarian relief and development that you have now, which is a whole other topic. But um, so, yeah, there I was in Haiti, and um, the people are really friendly. They're very poor, but they still paint their houses these bright colors, and they party. And um, it was just a really vibrant, exciting, different place. I'd never been around people like that or seen anything like that. And so... I became kind of <clears throat> enamored um, and made a few more trips. Yeah, so that was Haiti.
0: And and how would you go about selecting your projects? Would you hear about something that was going on in the world, and would you just be like, "This is what I need to cover"? Was it? Did you? Was, yeah. it, was it? Would it move you ahead of time, or how how would that work?
1: Yeah. So I've talked about this a few times, especially recently with young. Photographers who want to go into photojournalism, and it's just it's it's really different now. Um, at the time, yeah, there's something going on that is not getting covered. It's it has it has some interest or some bearing or some importance. Haiti being, you know, like less than an hour off of Miami. And the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere so was is sort of an important thing. Nobody had an idea, any idea of what was going on there, um, so I felt like that was important and it needed to be covered. And again, this was film, so the workflow was entirely different than it is now. Um, you know that. So I would pitch stories um, to publishers or or outlets. Um, yeah, like that first job was a commercial, in a sense, a commercial corporate industrial type film. Um, and, and then later I would pitch, I think I pitched to, C, uh, to PBS. They bought some stuff. Um, so over the years, I would you know I would say half of what I've done in either print or broadcast has been commissioned. People call me and say, do you want to cover this? And the other half would be stuff that I've come across and pitched and, and, or, um, produced on my own and then sold afterwards. So
0: I see. So I, I, so I actually didn't realize this. So as a, when you're, maybe when you're first getting into photojournalism, a lot of it is pitching. So you, you contact these news outlets and you say, there's this happening in this part of the world. I'd love to cover it. Are you interested? And then I guess they pay you ahead of time to go there, or do they pay you once you finish yeah. the job? Yeah, nobody,
1: nobody pays in advance anymore. <laughs> um, I mean, in those days, I remember getting an advance. This was for a broadcast piece for PBS, an advance... Of like fifteen hundred dollars or something, which was incredible, and it was such a <clears throat> it was such a breakthrough, kind of once in a lifetime opportunity, um, and that was simply because I, in, a, a senior producer was a friend of a friend, and I called him and pitched him this, and he said, "Okay, go do it." But yeah, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I, nobody nobody buys pitches in advance now it's essentially you basically got to go go and shoot it and unless you've been with an outlet for a long time and then there's sort of a understanding, although a lot of the outlets that I've worked for in the past don't won't actually commission things anymore because there's too much liability and and the terrain has changed I mean it was essentially unheard of for photojournalists or filmmakers to, to be injured or, or kidnapped or killed um, in, in, in those days. And it's become more and more frequent now. And uh, so, so the, the, the landscape has changed. The, the, the business landscape has changed drastically as well.
0: And when and I know you've worked, you've done you've done work with Vice Magazine, the New York Times. I want to learn about how a photojournalist goes about um, building their business. Um, In the past, um,
1: in a way, I I became sort of known for certain things. Like Vice came to me; Um, they wanted to do the Vice Guide to Congo, and I had been working in Congo for a few years at that point, and you know, I, people knew me. And so, you know, I guess somebody said, we want to go do something in Congo, you know, who who can we get? And somebody said, oh, you know, you should call Tim. Um, so, and then I ended up doing more work for them over the years and and I pitched them stories and, and uh, or sold them completed projects. But then that sort of changed too, I mean at some point after a few years, they were kind of complaining a little bit. They were saying, we pay you more than we pay anybody else. And I said, well, you know, you get what you pay for. <laughs> and then that kind of dried up and fizzled out. Um, and that's a lot of the business now, too. It's just the economy of it doesn't make sense. Like, I wouldn't go into photojournalism now, mm. knowing what I know. Um, yeah. Or I wouldn't. And it's been a little bit... I mean, <clears throat> I'm I'm sort of aging out in a, in a relatively graceful way um there are some projects i do want to i still want to do but um i wouldn't
0: i wouldn't go into that business now knowing what i know and tim you were going you know you were traveling all around the world going sometimes to some pretty dangerous places so that you can capture the story what was it that was driving you what made you feel compelled to visit these places
1: that's a that's a good question um I've started. I've started a, a couple of projects over the years that I haven't finished in um, book projects, um, and one of them had the the working title of Red which I have sort of abandoned. But at the time, what that meant to me was, um, I, I I want to. First of all, I, I am a people photographer. I'm not. I'm not a landscape photographer. Although maybe I will become one someday. Um, a great example of that is Sebastiao Salgado, who's kind of an idol. He made these beautiful photographs of um, of um, gold miners in Brazil. Uh, and then he got old and went off into the Andes Mountains just to photograph landscapes. So at the, I'm not there yet. Um, so I'm a people photographer. Um, and one thing that I, uh, I'm sort of compelled to or or inclined towards people at their peak, for whatever reason. Um, And I guess it's looking for that. Um, There also is a sense, there was um, a sense of uh, kind of social justice, where I felt like I needed to do this. So uh, the way I put this on other occasions is, I have a particular skill set in that I'm I'm able to endure some pretty shit conditions um, or danger, dangerous conditions or just general discomfort um, because most of that work entails a whole lot of discomfort in some form or another and I'm able to endure that and still capture or or create. Uh, you know, well-composed and exposed and somehow compelling images. Um, so that is a skill set that I have, and I don't think that many people have that. And I, so it's it's like, in a way, it's kind of like being a plumber, you know? I mean, not everybody can deal with all that shit and, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and get the job done. But, um, you know, I have a I have a colleague who, who also put it pretty poetically or, or a lot... More nicely, it's the, you know the minute we stop documenting humanity, um, then we start to lose our humanity. So mm-hmm. there is a an aspect of this that has driven me over the years, and also there there, there have come times where I've questioned that um, the authenticity of that or the or the validity of that. But but this this sort of compulsion to um, to witness, you know, humanity for the sake of humanity. Oh, um,
0: mm. well, I love that. Witnessing humanity for the sake of humanity. Yeah, and
1: that kept me going for, for a lot of years. But there, there, are, there have been times when I've questioned that. And I can, can give you an example that um, there were a few moments after doing this for some years... And I should back up here for a second and just clarify something. I haven't always done this. I've, I've also I spun off and opened three ad agencies in Europe in the '90s. Um,
0: in in Berlin, correct? Yeah,
1: yeah. Which is like this has nothing to do with any of this. But I, I kept coming back to this because it, it, it draws me. Um, but there was an episode in, uh, I think 2012, where after having done this kind of nonstop for a while, I was getting a little burnout and I was in Goma in Eastern Congo, um, which is, it's on the border of Rwanda and it's kind of the, the commercial hub of Congo. Um, it's where all the natural resources are and everything transits through there. There's a lot of action and there's a lot of intrigue and a lot of international interest and it's just wild west. Um, it's also frequently under siege, and the I, I had covered the there was a rebel army sieging Goma um, in 2008, and I ended, up be, I ended up being there on my birthday, and I, I was photographing the civilians running for their lives, carrying everything they own on their heads, and as this rebel army advanced on the city. And I photographed a woman with her children and all her belongings. Fast forward to 2012, so four years later, I was there again on my birthday um, on the same day. And the same rebel army was sacking the city again under a different name this time. Um, And I was photographing the people running for their lives and, and all that. And I saw this woman run by with her stuff on her head and her kids hanging off her. And I realized that I had photographed the same woman in the same spot the same day four years earlier. Wow. Um, So that made me kind of question, like, why am I doing this? And, like, you know, is this really doing You know, because I've been telling myself for, you know, quite a while that I need to do this because it makes a difference. And at that point, I started to kind of question whether it really makes a difference. Um, So that was one example of these episodes where I was kind of questioning the, 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 uh, the value of, of this. Um, I'm not disputing the value of this, but I, I think that it's when I just starting to question my own role.
0: So, okay. So you witness, so you see, you see the same woman running from the same village. You start to question whether or not, um, what you're doing is making a difference. Did that changed the trajectory of your career after that at all?
1: Not really, but I think, you know, <clears throat> I'm not really superstitious and I don't mm-hmm. necessarily believe in signs and that kind of thing, but there were a series of events that happened kind of one after another, and this started actually in 2010 in Haiti. I was back in Haiti for the first time in like, I don't know, 20 years or something, and it was heartbreaking because, to cover the, the earthquake, and it was heartbreaking for a number of reasons. and I mean, there were like, you know tens of thousands of dead people, and um the whole infrastructure had been wiped out and um but I also found myself again i have been doing this like kind of non stop um at the expense of like marriages um insanity you know id I'd, I'd been in this kind of like non stop orbit you know where i was rarely home, I would go from one crisis or conflict to another, um, and then back to them, and, and just kind of in this, this you know nonstop thing. And I ended up rushing to Haiti because of the earthquakes. I was there a few days afterwards, and, um, which is what you do. And, uh, and I found myself, I was there for probably six weeks, Um, and there's no food or water and, you know, it's it's all rough and I'm used to that. But, um, after, I don't know, six weeks there, um, I suddenly, and a lot of death, um, I suddenly realized that I was yelling at a local person for no reason at all. And I kind of lost it. So I... I became aware of that and said, okay, I got to get myself out of here now. That's just like, I'm not doing any good. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of a clue. And then, you know, there were, there were other moments here and there around the world, but that, uh, that last birthday in 2012, I think that was when I, I started to think, okay, I should probably think about doing something else or take a break from this. And I started that process, but it was, it, it was very ungainly. And, and, You know, this is at some point there around 2013, I decided to kind of pull myself out a little bit. Um, But then what I'm getting at is that then began a whole series of injuries and illnesses that, like, knocked me down completely. Um, Unrelated to traveling for work? Some of it related to, like, I had an an amoeba that almost killed me. Um, I had an epic motorcycle wreck in South Africa, i trying to think what else. I broke a foot while I was on holiday, but that put me out of, like, action. I couldn't walk for, like, three months. And it was it was almost as if something was sitting me down, just telling me to sit, stay, mm-hmm. you know, every time I'd bounce back up. and um, But that was sort of started this process. Again, a little bit like the uh, missing that rotation in, in fishing where I was forced to sit down for a couple of months and, and, and sort of get out of the, the routine long enough to, to think about doing something else. And mm. so this was a little bit like that around 2012, 2013, um, where I had a whole, still had a whole lot of crazy stuff going on in my life. I was living in Liberia and bouncing around different places. I actually, I went from Sudan to... Sarajevo, lived there for a little while, and then I was in Liberia, living there for a little while, and I was back in East Africa. um, But that motorcycle wreck, this was sort of at the end of it, um, it completely laid me out. I broke everything. I broke my left arm in half and broke both legs and my right hand. I was living in Johannesburg in South Africa at that time, and I thought I was going to settle there. That was sort of my idea. I was going to, like... Settle in South Africa and live a little bit less transient or, or, and I had friends there and, um, more adult friends in, in the business. And, um, so I got a place, bought a nice motorcycle and then totaled it and myself. Um, so that, that left me out of, out of action completely for three or four months um and right right before that i had i was actually hobbling on a cane from a broken foot um i'd shot um cowboy capitalists for uh j- just for myself and then ended up selling it to vice um and as soon as i was able i was ambulatory again after this motorcycle wreck they asked me to come to New York and, um, and finish it with them. So I did. And that started this whole period of time, which has been about 10 years where I ultimately ended up here in the Hudson Valley and, um, and kind of settled for the time being.
0: And so what type of work are you focusing on now? a Good question.
1: Um, I have no idea. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) What I'm, well, I I got married again um, not too long ago, and um, I bought a place a few years ago, uh, just outside the town of Hudson, uh, at the top of a hill at the end of the road in the woods, and it's got some land, and it's a kind of a cool older house, and so we decided to renovate this and then we're going to sell it and do kind of a swan dive into the unknown with the plan of, of moving to Europe. Oh, what part of Europe? Well, we as soon as so we're we're right in the in the final stages of renovation and this has been pretty exhausting. Um it's been nonstop. It's all I've been doing for like the last 6, six months. Um <clears throat> so we'll sell and then our first serious stop to look is going to be Portugal, um,
0: and specifically the Algarve. When you move to Portugal, do you think you'll still continue photography?
1: I think what I, what I have a gut feeling is that I'll probably get more into it. Um, again, um, I really haven't shot any, much of anything. I've done some commercial jobs over the last 10 years, let's say, um, I've done some corporate industrial stuff. I had a big oil company client for a while. Um, and I also got seriously into portraiture, which is more or less how I have my website configured right now is, is with a focus on portraiture, editorial portraiture,
0: um,
1: which I enjoy and I think I probably will, will do more of and pursue more of um, right now in this kind of like get this house done and get out of here. Mentality. But then, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I, if I feel it kind of brewing in me um, is one of the appeals, appealing aspects of Portugal, especially where we're looking is, um, I mean, it's a six hour drive to Africa. So, you know, that puts me back on that continent. Um, it also puts me,
0: you know, in an in a entirely different
1: marketplace than i've been in for the last few years
0: wow and you know and, and actually I want to circle back to the ad agency that you started in Berlin um, at what point at what point in your career did you start this agency exactly was it was right before you got into photojournalism
1: no I was well into it um and that was also just by chance and it was one again one of these sort of swan dive things um, that was early 90s uh, after the wall had just come down. Um, and I lived in East Berlin, which was, you know, wild, wild West. And, um, I had, I was, I'd been in Seattle, um, for a couple of years and then stepped off to go back to Africa. I was going to go back to West Africa and, um, I stopped in Berlin to visit a friend and stayed. Um, a friend of a friend had a, a, a three West Germans had opened a kind of a hot shop. They're graphic designers. They'd opened a, sh- a shop in Hackershamart in the former East of Berlin and were pitching an English language client. They wanted somebody to write copy in English. So I did. And my third wife was the art director that hired me for that. And then I just stayed. They found out I was a photographer, so I started shooting stuff. We landed that client. So I wrote more stuff and shot more stuff for them and as a freelancer. And at one point, they said, you're making more money than we are. You're causing us more money than we're making. Would you want to join us and I said no I think I'll just go do it myself so I took my then or future wife with me and we peeled off and started an agency then we we ended up with Unilever as a bread and butter client they're kind of like the Procter and Gamble of Europe and um, and then uh, we merged with a bigger agency sold it uh bought a big sailboat, went sailing for a couple of years, came back, opened another agency. And at that point, I, I, I'd sort of pooped out on that business and went back to photojournalism.
0: One one thing that I've noticed that's constant in both your personal and your professional life, you like to move around a lot, see the world, travel, um, which I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, that was also appealing for the job. Um, one thing that I keep thinking, though, that I think is pretty remarkable is that for the earthquake in Haiti, just as one example, everyone's leaving Haiti and you're like, it just happened. I've got to get there. Yeah. Um, do you think that you were able to endure these brutal conditions um, because you were keeping the the end results of the project in mind, the mission? What was it that really got you through?
1: In those circumstances, there's no real end of the project vision, you know, I mean, I don't, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, so I I really don't know. And I, I mean, people have, have accused me of being like, you know, like an adrenaline junkie or, or a crisis junkie. And I don't think I am. Um, like I said, there is a, and I, and I'm further away from this than I've ever been. So it's, it's a little bit hard in some way to, to, to think about this because I, it's, it's, it's a little bit distant to me now. Um, but then I also have a more of an objective view on it. Um, early on, I figured out a way, and I never really knew I had this until somebody asked me about this later, and the best way I could describe it is that it's like electric switch. Um, they would just switch off um, the, the natural... Um, instinct to, like, throw up, run away, cry, you know, whatever. Um, so I think, I mean, in a way, that's kind of what kept me going for a long time was was the mechanics of it, just the, the sheer, uh, you know, the, this has to get done, so this is how you do it. And, I, I mean, I'm not unlike most photographers where, a little affirmation goes a long way. So if I go through a lot of horror and come out with images that I think, okay, those are probably pretty representative and pretty good, but then people say, oh, those are great, um, that's a real
0: reinforcement. What is the most valuable lesson you've learned um, from your experiences as a photojournalist that you wish you had known when you were just starting out?
1: One lesson I've, I've learned, and it took me, it took me a long time to figure this out um, is to stop and reflect um, because I mean, I mean there's a, there was a tendency for myself and I think that, I think this is pretty common in the business um, to just keep going and in a way I mean it's a, it's a whole lifestyle and it's a whole business model I mean it's it's the way I was able to you know support children and get them through school was by being on the road all the time, um, your expenses are covered more or less by your client, and you know you you don't have the it's it's, it's very cheap to live on the road mm-hmm. um, but there's a there's a huge toll and there's a huge price you pay uh, further down the road and that's you know in, in just in your mental health i mean it's 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 necessary. To stop and really reflect, and you know, like, like a lot of people in the business, the way I did that was in these sort of brief blitz, binge drinking, you know, one week, uh, which is probably not the healthiest way to process stuff. I I mean, I would I would say that you know the mental health aspect of living that kind of life is is pretty huge. and had I had the grip on it that I have now uh, 30 years ago, I would be probably a different person. Um, and I probably would have produced different work. And I mean, it's, it's sort of, again, I mean, I would do everything the same. But that's the biggest takeaway for me. Um, when I first started out, I spent a lot of time on stories. Um, and that got shorter and shorter as I got older and more experienced and made more money. Um, so I would spend a month or more really living something and getting to know the people. The best work I've produced in my life has, has been when I've spent the most amount of time on it. I mean, for that's sort of obvious, but um, not
0: always. I mean, yeah, I was going to say not always. I think that's, that's an important lesson in and of itself.
1: Yeah. But there is something to be said about, about really knowing. And I would say the best, the best work I've produced in my life is stuff that I'm really familiar with. And so, you know, I'm very familiar with Congo, I'm very familiar with S- Sudan because I spent a lot of time there. Um, and I've probably done the best work in those places, although I've done great work in other places that I was at, oh, there only briefly. But um, there, there, there's there's something to there's something important about about really digging in somewhere and living there um, and living with the people. There's a there's a moment where you step off you're, you're no longer you know visiting but you're actually there. Um, and that, that changes, how, it changes your access, it changes the stories you get and the, and the pictures you're able to make.
0: Yeah, that's true. I, didn't, I never considered that. I, I'm assuming when you first arrive at a place and, you're, and you're, you know, you're hanging around locals, you're sticking out, and they're kind of probably just staring at you and giving you a lot more attention, whereas after spending some time there, you blend in, you befriend people, and you really get to see what life is like.
1: Yeah, Definitely. I mean, there's
0: a joke that I have, which is actually
1: true, um, is that I I tried to learn, well, I have tried to learn how to say I'm not stupid in every language that I've come across because I think it's the most important thing to know how to say because it makes people laugh. Um, And it also kind of, like, establishes a precedent. Okay, I'm not dumb. Um, But if you can learn to say that in somebody else's language, they laugh and they appreciate the fact that you're, Trying to speak their language, and it forms a you know it, it, it's a icebreaker that can lead to you know a whole lot of um, access and friendship.
0: Oh, that's that's actually really good advice. I'm going to take that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use it when I travel. That's really <laughs> that's funny. Um, if you could go back and speak to your younger self and offer one bit of advice right before right let's just say right when you graduated from art school. Before you embarked on this career you've had what would you, what would you say to yourself
1: a lot of this is most of this, if not all of it is stuff that's that's you have to do it you know you have to you have to go through that in order to get there um, so it's not like I don't feel like there's anything I could have told myself that would give me a shortcut um, because I think you know I, I mean we're all a product of our of our past and our experience and um and like I have said, I I would probably do pretty much everything the same again in order to get where I am now. Um, the one thing I would maybe advise myself is to check you know, check your head.
0: I love when you were talking about um, taking time to stop and reflect because I think that everybody in any profession needs to do that. We all need to do that every once in a while. Stop, reflect, see if... We still like what we're doing because I think that sometimes, um, I think sometimes we can get stuck, do, repeating the same patterns, maybe doing the same thing, not challenging ourselves if we don't stop and reflect every once in a while.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds a little pedantic, but and and it's not a it, it's not a big statement or, a, but it is actually something that's important and. I'm not the kind of person in general who would stop and reflect. <laughs> um, if I told myself to do that, I probably wouldn't do it. But and I'm sure somebody must have told me that at some point, and I didn't listen to them. Um, so I don't <laughs> know how much, how much, value that would have to tell my younger self um, or anybody else. But I think it's something. It's, it's more about like, check your head. Um, Because there have been periods over the years where I've gotten so accustomed to a pretty crazy routine um, that it's, you know, you kind of go on autopilot and, you know, people would say, wow, that's crazy. How do you do that? And my answer has been, you know, there's a switch. You just turn it off and that's the way you do it which is fine um but i guess then one should probably turn the switch back on once in a while
0: mm-hmm. and you know in your in your line of work especially and when you're traveling constantly you and i'm sure you don't really ever know what your day is going to look like how do you find how would you find balance in your day-to-day schedule
1: there's no such thing yeah no i mean that's that's the sort of the point that i'm making is that yeah, I made mean, a career of being out of balance. Um, but there's a price you pay for that. And so I literally kind of had to extract myself from that life in order to get some perspective on it. But now, I mean, so I've been more or less away from that for almost 10 years um, with, like, really brief dips back in. And um, <clears throat> you know, I've been talking about this with my wife, Trish, Um, whether I might go back into some aspect of that work and, um, because I'm good at it. And I think what I've, what I've decided and we've discussed is, um, if I do, it'll be for very specific humanitarian relief and development operations. Um, but I mean, with real, with real intention, um, not this, this kind of like bop in and hang out for six months and you know, but more like for a week or two weeks max, um, with a specific goal, and uh, you know, basically work on assignment with a very specific criteria. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a, a situation in which I can see that that making sense and that I have a skill set, I have some experience that that this pertains to and um without getting too far gone in a in a lifestyle that that I'm trying I'm thinking trying to think of an analogy. It's a little bit like running downhill, you know? It's it's like you gotta keep running. Yes. (laughs) You know, (laughs) or you're gonna face plant. (laughs) You know.
0: Yeah, I love that. And um and Tim, where can um where can the people that are listening find your work and keep up with what you're doing? Um,
1: well, you can go to my website, which is um, and see there's pretty much only uh, in, in environmental editorial portraiture there. Um, because that's what I'm trying to sort of show, you know, pre, uh, present myself as. Uh, but if you Google... Um, you'll find all kinds
0: of crazy stuff. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much for your time today, Tim. This was amazing. Um, and it was, it was so much fun hearing your story and getting to learn more about your career. Yeah, my pleasure. As we conclude this riveting episode of From Vision and Creation, we stand in awe of the profound insights shared by Tim Freccia, a visual storyteller whose lens has shaped the narrative of our world for over three decades. Tim's commitment to capturing the stories of people from diverse economic, social, and ethnic backgrounds, particularly in the crucible of conflict and crisis, is a testament to the power of visual storytelling. You can explore the vivid tapestry of Tim's work at timfreccia.com, where each photograph and frame tells a story that transcends borders and resonates with the universal human experience. Tim's journey, documented in the pages of Vice Magazine, The New York Times, Business Week, and other esteemed outlets, has not only brought the struggles of individuals in crisis to the forefront, but has also illuminated the resilience and strength that emerges from the human spirit in the face of adversity. We invite you to visit timfreccia.com to witness the powerful visual narratives that Tim has masterfully crafted over the years. His work serves as a testament to the ability of art to bridge gaps, foster understanding, and inspire change.